Becky and I have been in Fort Myers, Florida since um, December the 28th, and um, the church decided to fly me home this morning at 7 o'clock so I could preach in Pastor Mark's absence. <laughs> Not really. Uh, when, when we worked things out with Pastor Mark and the church board that we could take some time off in the winter, um, it goes way back to when Becky and I were talking about retirement years ago. Uh, I was a preacher's kid, so I didn't have a hometown to retire to, and Becky grew up in Xenia. This was her home church, and she said, I always wanted to retire in Xenia. I said, that's fine. We have a lot of friends in Xenia. Your mom, her mom was here at the time. She's in heaven now. Her two brothers and their families were here. I said, I'd be glad to retire in Xenia if we can go to Florida for the winter. So once I went on Social Security, we worked it out that we could go uh, to Fort Myers, Florida for the, week, for the winter. And our compromise was that we would fly back the first weekend in February and the first weekend in March. Well, last year, the first weekend in February, there was a horrible snor snowstorm. Snorm snow? There was a snor snorm snow. And uh, all the flights were canceled. We didn't get to come home. But we did come home the first weekend in March. So this year, we said, we'll try that again. We'll fly home the first weekend in February, the first weekend in March. Um, we're at a place in Fort Myers called Swan Lake Village. It was started 50 years ago in the early 70s by a Nazarene couple from Baltimore, Maryland, who would take trips to Florida. The man saw this as a, an opportunity to develop a 55 and over community. So there's a lot of Christian influence in the park, a lot of wholesome activities, good people. And uh, besides all that, he said, since I'm Nazarene, I'll always give Nazarene ministers a discount to stay at my park. So that was a selling point for me, of course. And uh, so we, we go for January, February, March. And uh, this year they asked us to do a Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock uh, service for 30 to 35 minutes. They haven't had a church service at our 55 and over community for more than five years. So every Sunday afternoon we're having a service. We left some other people in charge of that this afternoon. We feel like... We're having a ministry and a good influence on things that go on in that park. We've listened to several of the services here at Xenia Naz while we've been there. And uh, one of the phrases that impressed me, and by the way, I, I love the fact that our pastor is contemporary enough to preach a sermon from Finding Nemo. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Too bad all the boys and girls can't be in here to to hear about Nemo, but um, we have listened to some of the services, and one of the phrases that he said a couple weeks ago that impacted me, and I, I imagine it impacted you, was that phrase, but there is a God in heaven. That's what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar not only wanted an interpretation for his dream, he wanted the wise men to tell him what he dreamed. He dreamed something, it impacted him, he, he was traumatized by this dream, and then he couldn't remember what the dream was. So he told his wise men, you have to tell me what I dreamed and what it meant. And Daniel had enough courage to say, King, that's impossible. No human being can do that, but there is a God 
in heaven. And that, uh, that phrase reminded me of a similar phrase in the life of Joseph. If you remember Joseph and the coat of many colors, Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat, Joseph, whose 11 brothers sold him, well, 10 of his brothers sold him into slavery, and God watched over him through all of that, through all the ups and downs of his life, and finally put him in a position of leadership that saved the lives of thousands. And when he revealed to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, who had turned against him, when he revealed to them that he was still alive and that he was in power, he said this, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And I'm glad that we have that phrase, but there is a God in heaven, or simply, but God. I mean, the, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, had escaped slavery in Egypt, and they stood at the bank of the uh, Red Sea, not knowing what to do, because the water was in front of them, and the enemy was behind them, but God. There was a uh, a, a man that was way too big for his britches that was taunting the armies of God and blaspheming God himself. His name was Goliath. And uh, no one would fight against him. But God raised up David, the shepherd boy, with a sling and five stones to put Goliath down. All through the Bible, time and time again, you have these but God experiences. And I'm so glad that we have that kind of God. There is a God in heaven, and I appreciate Pastor Mark reminding of that throughout this series. Uh, he's talking about the people of God being in exile, and I don't know if he's made much reference to this, but in many ways, folks, we as Christians today, even though we're right here in America, we're in exile. This is not the land we grew up in. Uh, we have been taken captive, in a sense. It's difficult for us to confess and practice and proclaim our faith in this postmodern, post-Christian world. We are in exile as Christians to some degree. And so to look at the life of Daniel and the, the uh, three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, has been very profitable for you as a congregation as Pastor Mark has been preaching the word. I want to take a... Uh, a, kind of a right turn here today and talk to you about a different subject. Um, I've used this as a joke in my life. Uh, you know, I have a lot of jokes. In fact, I was going to tell you about the time I had a physical, complete physical, and the doctor brought me in and told me all the results of the physical, and he said, really, your only problem, Mike, is you are too sedentary. And I heard those words, and I determined right then and there that I was going to go out and buy me a dictionary. <laughs> and many of you don't know this, but I've written a couple of Christian songs. Neither one of them became very popular. One of them is called Outstanding Grace. It's not amazing. <laughs> but it's okay. And I wrote another one called I Can Only Envision. I, I can't imagine why it hasn't caught on. <laughs> All right. But here's a joke I've used for years when people exaggerate. You know how people exaggerate? They kind of blow up the numbers. They make things sound better than they are. 
they, they go to great lengths to impress you and, and to make you think that they're really something special. For instance, remember when your grandfather used to tell you, well, when I was a boy, we had to walk six miles to school in our bare feet. And it was uphill both ways. And we had to walk in six inches of snow year round. We had it rough back then. Well, I didn't quite have it that rough, but I have told my grandchildren that when I was their age, we had to walk clear across the room just to turn the channel on the television. Sometimes in our bare feet through two inches of shag carpeting. It, it was rough back then. And so we, we kind of exaggerate, like the small church rural pastor who said, oh yeah, we had a church picnic last week. There must have been 500 people there. No, probably not. Or when a grandparent talks about their second grade grandchild who is now reading on a sixth grade level and performing algebra functions, you know. So we tend to exaggerate. And, and I love to tell people when I hear them exaggerate what has become one of my standard jokes. I'll say, come on now. I've told you a billion times, don't exaggerate. All right. You get the gist. Exaggeration. I, I, it happens on social media all the time. For instance, a, a teenage girl goes through some kind of breakup with her boyfriend, and so she posts on social media, all guys are jerks. They're only out for one thing. They all cheat. I hate guys. Exaggeration, I'm sure. <laughs> all? Well, that's a pretty big word. It's only three letters, but it's a big word. All. It's so often used for dramatic effect or to sound more convincing. But standing in the shoes of that teenage girl, the totality of guys she's been with have all had that shameful profile. They've all had the same sinister motives in her mind, and they all possess the same questionable character. Therefore, all guys are condemned, and no young man is noble, kind, and loving. None of them fit into the gentleman category. All are jerks. So we use words like that. All, always, never, every. And we often use them for effect, to exaggerate our own opinion or to strengthen our own point. But we sure hate it when others use it against us, don't we? I don't even like to hear people make statements like this, but we do. We've all been guilty of this. Every time I get close to someone, I get hurt. Every time? If that's the case, there's a pattern here. Who's the problem? All those other people? The only common denominator is you. Every time I get close to someone, I get hurt. All my bosses have been micromanaging jerks. All your bosses. Everyone I trust lets me down. I never get any breaks. Everything and everyone is against me. People always judge me. I'm never included. We've all made similar statements to that. And the truth is, they're not true. Those statements are not true. Now, there are some absolutes and there are some exaggerations that are biblical. But think of this. If anyone deserves to use exaggerations, 
It's God, right? After all, he started it all. He created it all. He set it all up. He structures it all. He operates it all. God deserves to use exaggerations. We might not, but he does. Look at this world he created. Look at all the stuff. Look at all the blessings. Look at all he's done for you. Yes, God has some absolutes or some exaggerations that are very important for us. And one of the most basic is this. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. How many have sinned? All. All have sinned. No one gets a get out of jail card. No one is exempt. No one gets winked at. No one gets a waiver. The Bible says all have sinned. I don't care how nice you are. I don't think any of you are nicer than me anyway. See, now I already proved all have sinned because I judged all of you and elevated myself. No, all have sinned. No one is exempt from sin. The Roman Catholic Church believes that Mary, the mother of Jesus, never sinned. That's why they call it the Immaculate Conception. She didn't have a sinful nature and she never sinned. We don't believe that. We believe Mary was a human being and that she sinned just like anybody else. Jesus never sinned. He was fully God and fully human. But because of his reliance on the Heavenly Father, he lived a sinless life and became the sinless sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And don't miss that, folks. It doesn't say he who, be, he who knew no sin took on our sins for us. No, it says he who knew no sin became sin. How does a person become sin? In that moment that Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he became sin so that sin was crucified on the cross. And although all have sinned, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Bible gives that exaggeration, and it's true. All have sinned. And if that's the case, what are you going to do about it? Would you believe there's not a whole lot you can do about it? God has already done it. Praise the Lord. And your response to what God has done about the sins in your life makes all the difference. God had to address the problem of sin. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, you know what happened. God created Adam, put him in the garden, told him he could eat from any tree in the garden except one. He could eat from the tree of life. And as long as he ate from the tree of life, I think he would have lived forever. But God did say, one tree you cannot eat from it. And that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he created Eve to be Adam's companion, I believe it was Adam's responsibility to communicate to Eve, here is God's way and here are God's rules. But Eve was tempted by Satan in the form of a serpent, and she took the fruit from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate it and shared it with Adam. And in that act, they rebelled or disobeyed God. They transgressed the law that he had given them, and they sinned. They broke fellowship. How do I know they broke fellowship? Because the Bible says God would come every evening 
and take a walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. They did that on a regular basis. In the cool of the evening, they would walk and talk together. So the evening after they sinned, God shows up and Adam and Eve are hiding. Adam, where are you, God says. Finally, Adam says, I'm over here in the bushes, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that revelation, that knowledge that they received in eating that fruit revealed to them their nakedness. God never intended that to be a problem. But now God had to provide a solution for their nakedness. You know what he did, don't you? He killed animals and used their skins to clothe Adam and Eve. Oh, we have the cartoonish image in our mind of Adam and Eve wearing leaves. That probably was not the case. I don't think as soon as they sinned, Eve said, you know, I think I'll make us some clothes out of leaves. That wasn't in her thought process. They hid. They hid in the foliage of the garden. And when God showed up, he sacrificed an animal to cover the results of their sin. Now think of that. Clear back in the book of Genesis, centuries before Jesus, God has an animal sacrifice as a solution for the results of sin. Boy, if that's not foreshadowing, if that's not a precursor of what is to come, I don't know what is. Because Jesus came as the sinless Lamb of God and became the sacrifice to cover the results of my sin and yours, right? And he was sacrificed. So God has a solution for this problem. All have sinned. Listen to some other exaggerations in the word of God. I'm sorry we didn't have time to get them on the screen today, but you might want to jot some of these down real quick or type them in your phone real quick. Here are some other verses that give us God's exaggerations. Romans 10, 13. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who will be saved? Everyone. Say it. Everyone. Hebrews 7, 25. Hebrews 7, 25 says, He is able to save completely those who come to God. He doesn't just save us part of the way. Okay, I'll save you up to 80% and you do the final 20% on your own. No, he saves us 100% completely. It says in John eleven twenty five, he who believes in me shall never die. Never. All have sinned, but if you believe in me, you will never die. Philippians 4, 19. This is a great promise. Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need. Praise the Lord. Romans 8.28, in all things God is working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Matthew 28.20, these are among Jesus' final words to his followers. I am with you always, always, even to the end of of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Praise the Lord. 
2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. All the promises are yes in him. When God speaks in these terms, he's pronouncing his lordship, his power, his sovereignty, all that governs the relationship between him and mankind. He's saying, all have sinned, but all can be saved. No one's left out. Just like no one's exempt from sin, no one is beyond the power of God to be saved. You might say, well, you don't know what I've done, Pastor Mike. If people knew what I was really like, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. God could never forgive me for the things I've done. Some people, when they say that, they think that shows that they have signs of an inferiority complex. I'm not good enough. God could never love me. God, God knows what I've done, and, and he'll, I'm just too bad. He'll, he'll never forgive me. I'm, I'm beyond help. You know what? Think about it for a minute. That's not an inferiority complex. That's a superiority complex. Think about it. You're saying out of all the people that have ever lived, all the people that God's ever loved, all the people that God's ever saved, all the people that have ever become Christians, out of millions and billions of people, you're the only one that God's going to leave out? Who do you think you are? <laughs> no, he came for every one of us. He's not willing that any should perish. No one. He wants all of us included. All can be saved. No one should perish. And he offers eternal life. How long is eternal life? Always, forever, everlasting. So we joyfully and confidently declare that there is a solution to the sins we have committed. I have to accept that I'm a sinner. I have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have to confess my sins and repent of my wicked ways. And I receive his forgiveness, becoming a new creation in Christ. Now that was a long sentence, but it really doesn't have to be that complicated. Someone said becoming a Christian is as simple as ABC. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and confess your sins. ABC. Acknowledge, believe, confess. And it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise the Lord. He has provided a solution for our sins. All have sinned, but he's provided the solution for all. And you're included in that. In the Church of the Nazarene, not only do we believe that our sins have to be forgiven, we believe there's a sinful nature that needs to be dealt with. It's that sinful nature that made us commit those sins in the first place. This is a part of our Wesleyan Arminian theology. Now don't let that throw you off. That's just two last names, Wesley and Arminius. So we call it Wesleyan Arminian theology. Maybe you've heard of Calvinism. Maybe you've heard of Lutheranism. Maybe you've studied St. Augustine. There are lots, uh, many, many valuable theologians uh, throughout the centuries of history. But we in the Church of the Nazarene subscribe to the theology of these two men, Wesley and Arminius. And we believe in this theology 
that not only do we need to have our sins forgiven, but there is a deeper work of the Holy Spirit in our lives called entire sanctification or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit-filled life that every Christian needs to move toward and enjoy and experience. You see, if sin is a voluntary transgression against a known law of God, let me run that past you again because John Wesley made this very clear. That his definition of sin, to which as Church of the Nazarene we subscribe, is that sin isn't just an accident. Sin is not just a human failure. Sin is not being forgetful. Sin is not accidentally slipping. Sin is a willful or voluntary, I made up my mind to do it, sin is a willful transgression or disobedience against a known law of God. I know what God says and I don't do it. So it could be as simple as God says do this and I don't. That's a sin. God says don't do this and I do. That's a sin. A willful or voluntary transgression against a known law of God. Now, I know some people say, well, I just won't read the Bible and I won't go to church and I won't learn anything about what God says. Then I won't be responsible because I'm only responsible when I transgress a known law of God. Well, that, that excuse isn't going to work because I think every one of us has experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that has said to us, that's not right. You shouldn't do that. That was a bad attitude. Those were the wrong words to say. You shouldn't hang out with those people. We didn't have to read it in the Bible. We felt it in our spirit. His spirit was communicating with my spirit that that wasn't right. Some of you are old enough to remember the cartoons where there was a little angel on this shoulder and a little devil on this shoulder, right? And the, devil, the little devil cartoon guy was saying, go ahead, it'll be fun. Everybody's doing it. You'll love it. Oh, no one will ever know. Go ahead and do it. And the angel was saying, no, don't give in to that temptation. That's not right. It'll only bring bad stuff into your life. Don't do it. And so we had the angel and the devil, whichever shoulder they were on, they were warring and your head was right in the middle. It's like, oh, what do I do? The Holy Spirit is faithful, and he speaks to our hearts. Even before we're Christians, the provenient grace, the grace that's been provided beforehand is at work in our lives. It's his provenient grace that draws us to him in the first place, that kind of cracks the door open so that we can see there's more to life than what I'm experiencing. I don't have joy. I don't have peace. I don't have fulfillment. I don't have purpose. I need more than what this life is offering. And the Holy Spirit can get that door to crack open and begin to show us how much more fulfilling and joyful and blessed our lives can be. Praise the Lord. And he can forgive our sins, the things that we've committed the sins of our lives, the transgressions, the acts of disobedience, but he can also cleanse the sinful nature that caused us to do those things in the first place. Now, if we agree that there's a sinful nature, and I, I honestly, not just because I'm a member of the church of the Nazarene, I don't see how anybody could say, no, people are born pure and holy and perfect. 
It's only their environment and all the other stuff that makes them the way they are. Do you believe that? Well, spend a little time with a toddler. Right? We had a Sunday school class gathering Friday night. Kenan and Beth Ann brought Kezia. I think she's 21 months old now, maybe 20. And uh, she's not talking in full sentences yet. But she does have a limited vocabulary. And you know what the top two words in her limited vocabulary are? Some of you know. No and mine. And she used that one on Pastor Mike the other day. I wanted the ball she had. I wanted the ball. And she said, mine. You can't have my ball, Pastor Mike. This is mine. Now, someone has said, and this sounds so simple, I hope you've heard it before, but you need to hear it again. At the center of every sin is I. S-I-N. At the center of every sin is I. What are you talking about, Pastor Mike? Self-centeredness, wanting my way. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to be the authority. I want to choose I. Why would anybody steal someone else's stuff? Because I don't want to have to work hard enough to make enough money to buy it for myself, so I will take his stuff and make it my stuff. I. See what I'm saying? Why would I malign someone else's reputation? Why would I gossip about someone? Why would I tear someone else down by my, by my talking, by my speech? Because I want to make myself look better by tearing them down so people will be impressed with me or they'll think, wow, he knows a lot about things that are going on. That guy is really well informed. He, he is uh, up to date. I'm impressed. I. See, that's, you, you think of any sin and put it in those terms, what's at the center? I. There's something in there that is self-centered and self-motivated because you want your own way. And so that sinful nature that makes us want our own way, that self-centered sinful nature has to be dealt with. If our sins need to be forgiven, the sinful nature that made us commit those sins in the first place needs to be dealt with. How do we deal with it? Well, some people say you take that sinful nature and you put it in a box like this and you put a lid on it and then you sit on it. And all your life, all your Christian life, you just have to sit there and suppress that sinful nature. Oh, it tries to rear its ugly head to get you to commit more sins, but no, I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to white knuckle it. I'm going to suppress that simple nature. I'm not going to let it rear its ugly head, but every once in a while it does, right? It pushes us off, and then we find ourselves in some kind of trouble. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I, I guess I need to try harder to suppress that sinful nature. Got to keep it down, keep pushing it down. You can't suppress the sinful nature. Some people say it needs to be eradicated. That's an interesting word. Or obliterated. And they even use this illustration. When you get saved, you cut the tree down. So all the branches and leaves, that's all your sins that you committed. And God wants to forgive your sins. So you cut the tree down and you haul the tree away, put it in the fire, whatever. 
but the tree is no longer there. So your sins are forgiven. The branches and the leaves of the tree are gone. No more sins, forgiven. But the stump is still there, right? And you know what happens after a growing season or two? That's the ugliest looking tree you've ever had because you needed to take the root out. So those who believe in eradication say, we need God to take the root out, the whole stump, the whole deal, so there's nothing left that can ever grow again, and then we'll have him smooth it over and cover it up. But that's not really working in practical, real life either. No, God's way of dealing with our sinful nature is not to suppress it, and it's not to take the root out, it's to cleanse it. It's to cleanse it. Have you ever put your car through a car wash? It looks better, doesn't it? But have you ever had your car detailed? You know where the guy uses the hand rag and brush and the toothbrush in the, in the vents and the vacuum inside and all the crevices? I mean, to have your car detailed. It's really cleaned up. Or maybe you think of the old-fashioned chalkboard. I know. I do want to tell you, though, that the, the um, dry erase board that they use now, that's one of the best inventions of the 20th century. It's remarkable. Okay. Just wanted to make sure you're still listening. Those dry erase boards, they're remarkable. They really are. But the old-fashioned chalkboard, the teacher could erase what she or he put up there, but there was still a chalk residue, especially when they used the yellow chalk. For some reason, that looked more chalky than the white chalk. But anyway, they thought they erased the board, but it wasn't clean. But every once in a while, they'd let a kid volunteer or two kids volunteer, and they'd bring in a little bucket and some sponges, and they would wash the chalkboard. And man, it looked so nice. It was clean. So when we are saved, our sins are erased. Maybe when we're sanctified or filled with the Spirit, our hearts are cleansed. They're wiped clean by His amazing power and His amazing grace. We must have the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. So we're saved by ABC, right? Acknowledge that you need a Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope and confess your sins. How do we get sanctified? How do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? The first thing we have to do is empty ourselves out. Say what? Well, do you want the Holy Spirit to live in there or not? Are you just going to give him a room? Are you just going to let him sleep on the couch? Oh, you can camp out back, Lord. No. I'm inviting him into my heart, into my life, into my residence. And I've been with him long enough to realize he makes so many, he makes much better decisions than I do. <laughs> you ever figured that out? God makes a lot better decisions than you do. And he can clean up a lot of your decisions too, the ones you've messed up. But why not let him take up residence in your life? Well, when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, he wants to bring his stuff. Right? He's got the resources. 
He's got everything we need. He's got all the equipment. He can outfit your kitchen. He can fill up all the drawers in your bedroom and your closets. He can bring all the tools you need out in the garage. The Holy Spirit wants to bring his stuff, his resources. He's got the blessings that you need. And he's got a whole truckload of them he wants to bring. So what are you going to do with your stuff? Well, it makes sense to me. I'm going to get rid of my stuff. So I'll say, Lord, bring your stuff on in. I'll put all my stuff in the attic or the garage. And the Lord says, why? Are you going to need it? Well, you know, there is a possibility that I might need some of this stuff. Oh, my resources aren't enough? Well, Lord, we haven't walked together that long or... Maybe I haven't trusted you enough, but I'm going to keep my stuff handy just in case. And then we let him move in and we realize, I haven't touched that stuff in the garage or the attic in months. I know, I'll rent a storage unit. So you get a truck and you move all of it to a storage unit and you start paying a monthly fee. And the Lord's saying, why do you need all that stuff in storage? Well, Lord, you know, somebody might need it or... Sometimes I'll just go over there and remember when I had all my own stuff. But I've got everything you need, don't I? And I say, yeah, Lord, you do, but I just want to hold on to that for a while. But don't you think there ought to be a time when you realize every single, I know I'm exaggerating here, <laughs> but it's true, it's biblical, every single resource I need, he provides. I don't need my stuff anymore. My stuff's messed up. My stuff's dirty. It's broken. It's used. It's cruddy. I don't need it. It doesn't even compare to what he brought. Look at these resources he's outfitted my house with. And then we have to decide. We're going to have a yard sale. We're going to take it to Goodwill. We're going to throw it away. Recycle it. What are we going to do with all that stuff? But however we get rid of it, it's time to get rid of it, folks. Empty yourself out. That's why we sing a song that says, I surrender all. Yes, it's an exaggeration. It's everything. I surrender all. The, the whole song starts with that word. All to Jesus, I surrender. Not part, not half, not some. All to Jesus. Why? Because his resources and his provision are everything we need. Praise the Lord. So we give ourselves to him. We ask for his forgiveness. He forgives our sins. We say, Lord, I need that sinful nature. I need that carnal nature, that depravity dealt with. And he cleanses us as we give ourselves to him and empty ourselves out. We empty ourselves out so he can have complete control in our lives and we receive the fullness of his holy spirit and his spirit is there to help us with every decision to help us with every step we have to take and he's there to guide us into our future and the purpose and fulfillment and joy of life that he gives and the calling that he has on our lives as we make ourselves available I want you to experience the joy and the peace and the fulfillment of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that your heart has been cleansed by faith and that you totally belong to God. The old timers used to call it being saved and sanctified. 
being born again and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to experience that in your life. It's the best way to live. Let's bow our heads. Our communion servers are coming to prepare the Lord's table. And we have our hearts and ears open right now to what the Lord is saying to us. Lord, someone needed to hear this message today. Maybe I needed to hear it. I needed to preach it. Your word says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I know there are many people in this sanctuary today who have been redeemed. Their lives are different than they've ever been. You've made such a difference in their lives. You've forgiven their sins and cleaned them up and given them purpose and meaning in life. But there's a deeper walk that we can go into called entire sanctification, being filled with your spirit. And Lord, I want everyone to experience that to the fullest. And that only happens as we surrender ourselves to you, clean, let you clean us out so that you can come in and fill us with your resources, with your presence, with your power. Thank you, Lord. And I pray that the prayer of every person here today would be, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And I know that you'll come when you hear that prayer and you'll do the work that we're asking you to do. I thank you for the opportunity to receive the gifts of communion today. We don't ever want to take this for granted. And as we come to your table or as we celebrate communion in our seats, we're thankful that your body and blood have been offered up for us so that we can have salvation full and free. I pray that this time will be a means of grace whereby every person draws closer to you if a person has never become a Christian, this is the time. They can say, I acknowledge you as the only Savior. I believe that the Lord Jesus is the solution, and I confess my sins. If they're already a Christian, they can move closer to you, walking in the light daily as you are in the light, surrendering all and receiving the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that even though all have sinned, you are not willing that any should perish. And so your free gift, of, your free gift is available to every single one of us. Thank you, Lord.